The Night of the Hunter is a difficult movie to categorise. On the surface at least, it is a misfit, a mismatch between a children's fable and an adult nightmare. Dig deeper, however, and you will see it is also a distinctive visual fusion of American pastoral paintings and the canvases of German expressionist artists. Once upon a time, there was a pretty boy. He had a pretty wife, a pretty boy. But one day she flew away, flew away. Before all that, though, it was a novel written in 1953 by the rather curiously named Davis Grubb. It won Grubb the National Book Award, which is quite an achievement considering it was Grubb's first novel. It must have bought him even greater satisfaction because he was a failed painter. Now, that is not a judgment, but a fact. Grubb was forced to abandon his dream of being a visual artist when he learned he was colorblind. Instead, he turns to writing, starting out in the short story format. Branching into the novel form, almost all of his books take place in, or are at least influenced by, his experiences of the Great Depression. In fact, The Night of the Hunter was inspired by a real-life case that occurred in Grubb's home state of Virginia. Herman Drenth was born in Holland. But upon arriving in the United States, he changed his name to Harry Powers. He then acquired the habit of introducing himself to the ladies as Cornelius O. Pearson. Other times he presented himself as A. or Weaver. But no matter what name he used, he would place ads in the Lonely Heart section of local newspapers. Then, following up on the replies he received, he would befriend the women, steal their money and murder them. Pretending to be Pearson, Powers murdered Asta Eicher, a widowed mother of three. Powers then murdered her little son Harry and two daughters Greta and Annabelle. Next, he murdered Dorothy Presta Lemke, and when the law finally caught up with him, history bestowed upon him yet another name, the Bluebeard of Quiet Dell. Well, now, what's it to be, Lord? Another widow? How many's it been, six? Twelve? I just remember. You say the word, Lord. I'm on my way. With such lurid, if not tragic material ripped straight from the headlines, it should come as no surprise that Grubb's novel became a bestseller. But even before the book was published, Grubb had sold the movie rights to producer Paul Gregory. Now, when I say Gregory was a producer, I really mean that's how he titled himself. You see, Prior to purchasing the film rights, Gregory had never produced a film in his life. His real occupation was a television executive, and before that, he had been a booking agent. It was while working as an agent that Gregory had on his books the Oscar-winning British director, Charles Lawton. Through their friendship, Gregory learned of Lawton's ambition to direct, and so, ever the attentive agent, Gregory went off in search of some scripts. A friend of Gregory's, a literary agent, passed on Grubb's story, which was then only in galleys. Gregory then hired the renowned film critic and sometime scriptwriter James Agee to adapt the book into a screenplay. The problem was that, unknown to Gregory, Agee had completely succumbed to alcoholism. I'll tell you a secret. Yes? I know your daddy. And you know what your daddy told me? He said, you tell my little girl, Pearl, that there's to be no secrets between her and you. Yes? All right, now it's your turn. What secret shall I tell? Ooh, uh, what's your name? 
You're just fooling. My name's Pearl. Well, I reckon I'll have to try again. Uh, where's the money hid? So let's look at what we have here. A movie based on a book by an unpublished novelist, adapted by an alcoholic film critic for a first-time producer who is taking a risk on his actor friend who wants to be a director. It gets worse. Grubb's book is short, about 200 pages, but the script that A.G. turned in ran to 350 pages. God works in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Yes, I was with Brother Harper right up to the end. Now that I'm no longer employed by the penitentiary, it is my joy to bring this small comfort to his loved ones. It's a mighty good man would go out of his way to bring a word of cheer to a grieving widow. So you ain't with the state no more? No, brother, I resigned only yesterday. The heart-rending spectacle of them poor men was just too much for me. So, Lawton binned what A.G. had written and went about rewriting it himself. And then, in a benevolent gesture beyond chivalrous, Lawton declined the writing credit and gave it entirely to A.G., who then died before the film received its premiere. So, the story has two children whose father is executed for armed robbery. Their mother, played by Shelley Winters, marries a preacher. The preacher, played by Robert Mitchum in a legendary performance, murders the mother and goes after the children because he is convinced that they know where their father has hidden the stolen money. The children then take flight into a bucolic landscape and within that landscape, an age-old battle will take place. The battle between good and evil. Only here it is not between God and the devil, but between the preacher and an old woman. The old woman is played by silent movie star Lillian Gish, who came out of retirement, and her beautifully ageing face carries with it all the sadness of a life gone by, and the hope that salvation will soon be at hand. Both the old woman and the preacher are believers, both can quote chapter and verse, but while the old woman sees religion as a protective cloak, the preacher uses the good book as justification for his murderous impulses. H-A-T-E. It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. L-O-V-E. You see, these fingers, dear hearts, these fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch and I'll show you the story of life. These fingers, dear hearts, is always a warring and a tugging, one again to other. Now watch them. Old brother left hand. Left hand hates a fighting, and it looks like love's a goner. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hot dog loves a winning. Yes, sirree. It's love that won, and old left hand hate is down for the count. Such a unique mix suggests that the film belongs in the tradition of the American Gothic. But it is more than that. It is by turns lyrical, lurid, and at times so downright uncanny it borders on the surreal. Simply put, before The Night of the Hunter was released, there had never been a Hollywood film like it. The fact that the film flopped at the box office is now an irrelevance. Instead, what is to be regretted is that Charles Lawton never directed again. The lamentable truth is that the film was met with cool indifference by critics, and thus stands as a salutary reminder that critics need to wait a while before committing pen to paper and committing such a talent to oblivion. Leaning. Leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning. Ultimately, it is not the critics who decide what is good or bad cinema, but time. 
and now, some 58 years later, the film has a devoted following. That following began with filmmakers, and the film's influence is now legion. Considering its unique mixture of horror and hope, it should come as no surprise that the great David Lynch counts it amongst his favourite films. Elsewhere, you can feel its presence in Neil Jordan's The Butcher Boy, Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear, and Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. It even turns up in an episode of The Simpsons, where Sideshow Bob recites the hate love speech. In 1992, The Night of the Hunter was selected for inclusion in America's National Film Registry at the Library of Congress as culturally, historically and aesthetically significant. It is available on DVD. Just make sure there are no preachers around when you watch it. <laughs>